This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, March 31st. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump celebrated the end of the Mueller investigation out on the 2020 campaign trail this week. The collusion delusion is over. As congressional Democrats learned, they'll have to wait until mid-April to see Attorney General William Barr's redacted version of the report's findings. Another stop on Mr. Trump's victory lap, Capitol Hill, where the president declared he was taking back an issue that helped Democrats win control of the House. The Republican Party will soon be known as the party of health care. That came as a shock to Republicans who've struggled for years to eliminate Obamacare. We'll talk to Florida's Rick Scott, one senator that President Trump has assigned to come up with a plan to replace it. And there was yet another surprise at week's end. So there's a very good likelihood that I'll be closing the border next week. A threat to shut parts of the southern border to stop the flow of illegal immigration from Mexico. And plans to slash aid to Central American countries for not doing more to reduce the flow of migrants to the U.S. 2020 Democratic candidates pounced. Beto O'Rourke formally kicked off his campaign from his hometown of El Paso. For more than 100 years, this community has welcomed generations of immigrants trying to escape brutality, violence, and crushing poverty. To find a better life in this country for themselves and for their kids, that's for sure. We'll talk with Senator Bernie Sanders about his campaign. Plus allegations from a former Nevada lawmaker that former Vice President Joe Biden touched and kissed her without consent. Analysis on that story and others are just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with Vermont Independent Senator and candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, Bernie Sanders. He joins us from Burlington. Good morning to you, Senator. Let's uh, start off because I do want to get to some of your platform issues, but let's start with these allegations from Lucy Flores. She is a Nevada politician who uh, you had endorsed and who in the past has been supportive of you. She hasn't endorsed a candidate in this particular race, Uh, but she's accused Vice President Joe Biden of inappropriate touching. You know her. Do you believe her? What do you make of this? I have no reason not to believe Lucy. And and I think what this speaks to is the need to fundamentally change the culture of this country and to create environments where women uh, feel comfortable and feel safe. And that's something we have got to do. 
want to read a statement from the vice president who said it, it's a lengthy one, but in just part of it, he says, in my many years on the campaign trail and in public life, I've offered countless handshakes, hugs, expressions of affection, support and comfort. And not once, never did I believe I acted inappropriately. If it is suggested I did so, I will listen respectfully, but it was never my intention. Uh, that's a general denial. Um, but Ms. Flores was on CNN this morning, Senator, and she said uh, that really this needs to be taken more seriously as a party, suggesting that Democrats aren't taking it seriously enough. And she said she's well, coming forth. Well, she says she's coming forth now because she thinks it's disqualifying for Joe Biden. Do you think it's disqualifying? Well, I think that's a decision for the vice president to make. I'm not sure that one incident uh, alone disqualifies uh, anybody. But her point is absolutely right. This is an issue not just the Democrats or Republicans. The entire country has got to take seriously. It is not acceptable that when a woman goes to work or is in any kind of environment that she feels anything less than comfortable and safe. And this is an issue the entire country has got to work on. And I know uh, your own campaign has had some reckoning with this as well in the past. And, and Margaret, we have established the strongest protocols to prevent this from happening of any campaign in history. I want to get to the issue of health care. The president this week said he wants the courts to strike down Obamacare, the Affordable (laughs) Care Act. Um, But to be fair, Senator, you want to replace Obamacare, too. You want to replace it with Medicare for all, this government-run, government-financed program. So if the courts strike down the ACA, does that ultimately help you? No. No. Look, uh, yes, Trump has an idea on health care. His idea is to throw 32 million Americans off of the health insurance they have, doing away with insurance for kids who are 26 years of age or younger who are on their parents' plan, doing away with the protections that the ACA has for pre-existing conditions, Margaret. That means if you have cancer, you have heart disease, you have diabetes. If Trump gets his way, the cost of health insurance for you will be so high that many people literally will not be able to afford it. Thousands of people will literally die. That's Trump's health insurance plan. My plan's just a little bit different. I think we should join the rest of the industrialized world guarantee health care to all people as a right, and the absurdity of the United States spending twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation, while our life expectancy is actually going down and our health care outcomes are worse than many other countries. And by the way, we pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Margaret, let me make a campaign promise to you, and you can repeat this, play this tape over if I'm elected president. And that is, if I am elected president, I'm going to cut prescription drug costs in this country by 50 percent so that we are not paying any more than other major countries are paying. Maybe we can do better than that. Because we will look at the average costs of prescription drugs in Canada, the UK, Germany, Japan and France. We will look at their average costs, which are 50 percent lower than they are in the United States, and we will do that. And if the, the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. if the pharmaceutical industry, which made 50, the five major companies made $50 billion in profits last year, they pay their CEOs outrageous compensation packages. If they don't like that, they will take a look at their patents. When are you going to reintroduce people, your Medicare for All plan in this Congress? So you've already got five we are going to people do, 
supporting We're going to do that within the next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks. We are going to do, yes. So, and, would, and by the way, when we, when we do that, mm-hmm. what we understand is that it is just not acceptable that 30 million Americans have no health insurance and even more are underinsured with high deductibles and high copayments. So, you so where we are right now, I'm sorry, go ahead. So I want to also ask you, though, because we have what the president is calling a crisis at the border. He's threatening to shut down portions of it this week. He has <clears throat> given the order to cut off aid to Central American countries. Uh, do you think this helps? Do you think this hurts? And can Congress stop this cutoff in aid? Well, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. It's totally absurd. Look, you have How can you a stop terrible... it? The state department well, says they're already trying just... to enact the cuts. Well, you can stop it by overriding what he is doing and making sure that we fund these programs. Look, here is the story. You have a terrible humanitarian crisis. You have women and children traveling a thousand miles or more, often by foot, in order to escape the violence and poverty in their countries. So what we need to do, of course, is A, comprehensive immigration reform, but B, we need to make sure that our borders are secure, but Also, we need a humane policy at the border in which we are not yanking uh, tiny children from the arms of their mothers. That's not what America is about. Pardon me? Would you keep these children in detention longer or deport them faster? What would you You do? You need a humane policy. These are, you know, when when you lock up children, when you separate children from their mothers, this is a traumatic situation which these kitchen children, many of them, will never recover from. You need a humane humanitarian policy at the border. You uh, today have um, hit this benchmark, you know, end of first quarter funding, financing for the campaign. I believe you said you wanted one million donors by this time. Did you meet One million that goal? contributions. Did one you meet million the goal? contributions. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but I am enormously impressed uh, by the... Uh, many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans who are making contributions. Many of them are very small uh, contributions. I'm also impressed by the fact that we have over one million people from every state in this country who have volunteered uh, to work on what will be an unprecedented grassroots campaign. Look, Margaret, the way we win the Democratic nomination, the way we beat Trump, who in my mind is the most dangerous president in modern American history, is through a massive grassroots effort, which demands that we have an economy and a government which works for all of us and not just the 1%, that we end this massive level of income and wealth inequality where three of the wealthiest people own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans, while at the same time, over half the people in this country are working paycheck to paycheck. Will you be releasing your your tax returns? Senator Gillibrand did so this week, or some of them. Yeah, we will. I mean, we have it all done, and it's just a question of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Yes, we will, absolutely. And by the way, let me challenge President Trump to do the same. Trust me, we do not have investments in Russia or Saudi Arabia uh, or any place else. Yes, we will be releasing them. Senator, we'll be watching your campaign. Look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you. We turn now to Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott, who joins us from Naples this morning. Senator, uh, welcome to Face the Nation. You got your work cut out for you. President Trump said you are one of the senators in charge of coming up with a Republican alternative to Obamacare. Uh, When are we going to see your proposal? Well, first off, I'm glad the the president cares about health care. I've 
I ran the largest hospital company. I care about the cost of health care, and that's what I focused on. I know it's going to be tough. Uh, I look forward to, you know, to seeing what the president's going to put out. But with Nancy Pelosi in the House, it's going to be tough to get something done. But we do know that Medicare for All, uh, which Senator Sanders is all in on, is going to just ruin our health care system. So you, are uh, it's you, going to I'm ruin sorry, Medicare, to clarify, and it's also going that, to ruin private insurance. Did you just say that you expect the White House to come forward with the proposal first? Well, I know, I know, the, I know in the end the White House is going to have to have their plan, uh, and I know it's going to be difficult uh, with Nancy Pelosi, but what I'm going to focus on is how do you drive down costs. The Democrats constantly focus on access. The problem is the cost of health care is too high in this country. That's why I put a bill out this week that requires transparency at the pharmacy, at the, with the insurance companies, and says we're not going to allow um, pharmaceutical companies to charge us more than what they charge in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the same issue when I ran a large hospital company, and I said I did the exact same thing. I said I had hospitals in Europe. I said I'm not paying more uh, for uh, drugs in Europe than I'm paying in the United States. It's it's not it's not fair to Americans. And it sounds that's, like and you gonna, and Senator Sanders I'm going to work hard to get that. that passed. Well, we don't agree on much, <laughs> um, but I'm glad he cares about prescription drug prices. But the the problem that Democrats have is everything they keep doing is raising the cost of health care. Let's look at Obamacare. But Premiums Senator, went up. Can, can you just up, put a button on this, though? Up. Clearly, the White House is going to have to weigh in. And the White House acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was on other television programs this morning saying that he can promise no one will be left without health care if Obamacare is struck down. But as you've just said, there is no plan yet. So how can you promise that, like a state like yours, where it has the most uh, people reliant on Obamacare of any state, how can you promise them they won't be left hanging? Well, first off, Margaret, my focus is on and how do you drive down the cost of health care? That, that's what's causing people uh, health care issues. You talked, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people in my state about the, like insulin costs. How, why in the world would they go up the way they have? Now, the well, other thing. But that's the cost you know, of a plan. That, with what if they won't have a plan at all if Obamacare is struck down? Can you promise them that won't be the case? Well, first off, I'm going to make, I, I think it's first off, it's very important that we make sure that people have a pre-existing condition can get in, can get a health care plan, uh, get a health care plan that they can afford. And, I'm, and I want to work on that with other senators to make sure that happens. We talked about it at the budget committee last week, and everybody was supportive of that. I want to make sure uh, individuals can stay on their parents' plans. But, but the, this idea of taking the government taking over health care and mm-hmm. running all of health care has never worked. It's not going to work. We do, we're going to ruin the entire system. Let's focus on the problem we have. The problem is not access. The problem is the cost of health care and the unbelievable inflation we've seen, especially let's start right. with drug prices. Why are drug prices going up the way they have? So you think this piece by piece approach is the best way to do it rather than a wholesale Republican alternative? Look, I, I, I want to listen to everybody's ideas. I've sat down uh, with the pharmaceutical companies, the PBMs, the insurance companies, the hospital industry, um, the pharmacies, to ask them their ideas. I, I think the best way of doing this is to get everybody's ideas and see what we can do. So that, that sounds like on, the piece Instead of what the Democrats you, keep doing is access. Can you, can you I say? I focus on driving down costs. Sh- I'm sure people will like things cheaper. They always do. In terms of what they'll actually be able to get, though, can you say that the Republican alternative will do things like guarantee access to maternity care or care for newborn children, mental health, some of the things that are guaranteed in Obamacare? 
first off, it's very important to me that people get health care. I, I will only support something where people have access to health care, but it's got to be at a price they can afford. But on those I particular in instances... I watched my mom cry that she couldn't get health care for my brother. On those particular things, though, would it provide maternity care? Well, uh, of course. I mean, okay. but Margaret, this, the president just put out a marker, uh, what he wants to accomplish. I, I think all of us want to be helpful to try to get something done. We know it's going to be difficult with Nancy Pelosi and with the Democrats proposing Medicare for all. We know that. At the same time, what I'm going to do is what I believe we can get done. Let's focus first on prescription drug prices. They're way too high. We mm-hmm. shouldn't be paying more than what they pay in Europe. It's unfair to Americans. And let's go piece by piece to try to fix it. And don't expect a wholesale plan until after 2020? You know, I, you know look, I, I'm going to continue to work on, I'm, I'm a business guy. The way I got my stuff done in business is every day I said, what could I get done today? Okay. And I know a lot of people like, to, like the grand bargains. I personally don't believe in grand bargains. I believe in piece by piece fixing things. Got it. And quickly, uh, do you support the president's call to cut off aid to Central American countries who are sending migrants into the United States? I'd have to learn more about it. Uh, the, what I went down to the border, we have a crisis. Uh, we, need, we need more barriers. Uh, so we have operational control. We need more people. And we need more technology. I'm very disappointed that I walked into this job, what, three months ago with the government shut down and the Democrats don't want to give any money for border security. That's wrong. Senator, thank you very much. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. Last month, the top three elected officials in Virginia, all Democrats, became entangled in a series of scandals. The governor, Ralph Northam, and the secretary of state, Mark Herring, faced accusations of racist behavior in their past. But the accusations facing Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax were of a different sort. Two women, Dr. Vanessa Tyson and Meredith Watson, accused Fairfax of sexual assault. He's denied the allegations. CBS This Morning co-host Gail King spoke with both women separately in their first television interviews since they came forward with their allegations. Dr. Tyson is a political science professor at Scripps College. Here's some of their conversation. What do you want to happen to Justin Fairfax? Why are you coming forward? In my ideal world, Mm -hmm. I'd want him to resign. There were two main reasons why I came forward, right? Like, there's a million reasons not to come forward, right? It's tough. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, I look at my beautiful students. I have the most wonderful kids. They're 
brilliant and thoughtful and kind and passionate and they want to make the world a better place and I teach politics and and then they want to get involved and all I can think of is that I don't want this to ever, ever, ever happen to them. And then the second thing that I think is that the Virginia people need to know who it is that they elected. They need to know. I think the Virginia people, the voters of Virginia, have a right to know, you know, both my story and Meredith's story, right? I think there should be a public hearing. I think that... Not an investigation. There's a difference between hearings and investigations, and investigations often allow people in power to sweep things under the rug, right? I mean, that's just, you know, kind of... uh, uh, a pattern that I, as a political scientist, that I, I've witnessed and, and seen emerge, right? A hearing, um, you'd be prepared hearing, to testify in front of the, the Virginia General Assembly. In front of the Virginia General Assembly under oath. I would want Meredith, myself, and Mr. Fairfax to be able to speak, to be heard. And particularly for survivors, I think this is incredibly important. They need to be heard. We need to be seen, right? And we need to be treated as the human beings that we are. You can watch more of Gail's conversation with Dr. Tyson tomorrow on CBS This Morning. And on Tuesday's broadcast, her interview with Meredith Watson. We'll be back in a moment. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans... Our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. We want to take a closer look at how this week's news is impacting the 2020 campaign. Jamel Bowie is a columnist for the New York Times and a CBS News political analyst. Caitlin Huey Burns is a CBS News political reporter and part of our political team at CBSN. Jamal Simmons is a Democratic strategist and a host on Hill TV. And Ed O'Keefe is a political correspondent here at CBS News. Uh, Ed, let's start with you. Bernie Sanders making his case, uh, going back to one of the hits, Medicare for All, which has now become mainstream. I mean, at least five candidates have signed on to his plan that was kind of out there in 2016. Should we assume that this is going to be sort of the dividing point for Democrats? It's certainly one of them. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of people commented as he was entering the race that in some ways Bernie Sanders had kind of won the 2016 cycle because all of his ideas have now become essentially party orthodoxy, or at least open for more vigorous debate. And uh, when it comes to Medicare for All, certainly that is one of them. Uh, The fact that the party is now 
comfortable having a, a more robust discussion about it, I, I think is a signal that he and, and Elizabeth Warren certainly have dominated the first few months when it comes to the ideas debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sanders also likely to dominate the money race uh, when, when fundraising totals come in starting he didn't tomorrow. He didn't give a lot of detail he on didn't. that. <laughs> uh, it's funny how he fact-checked you but then couldn't answer the question right. about whether or not he's actually met his goal. Uh, but everyone presumes that he, could, uh, that he will be on top uh, of the money race and, and very well could be north of $30 million raise, which is a pretty good start. Jamal, last wow. time you were on, you were talking about some of the limits, though, of Bernie's appeal. Yeah. Do you see him changing the way he campaigns in a way that, that broadens his appeal, particularly to black voters? He's certainly trying. Uh, his campaign leadership is much more diverse than it had been in the past. I think he's going places where there are people who are different. Um, the question becomes, how can he get particularly middle-aged African-American women to sign up for the Bernie bus? Uh, so many of uh, of, of the people who supported him were people who were younger in the last election. And I think, um, you know, a middle-aged African-American audience is still a little bit more conservative than kind of a Northeastern socialist might think. Jamel, you've written, though, about Bernie Sanders in a way you said he has a defined foreign policy in a way others do not. Right. Uh, one interesting thing about Sanders this time around versus 2016 is how he has sort of in the in the in the interim really developed foreign policy ideas, really put himself out there as someone who is trying to lead the democratic field on foreign policy, specifically uh, an, an agenda that treats authoritarian regimes, global uh, kleptocracy, all these things as part of a, a singular challenge for the United States to face that both threatens global stability and American democracy. And more and pro-Palestinian. All right, and more pro-Palestinian, more willing to kind of question alliances the U.S. has with uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, with other uh, uh, authoritarian countries. And that, I think, may, if, if, if in fact the domestic policy debate among Democrats is everyone's kind of on the same page, then that might be an issue that ends up shaping debates as the race goes on. We're going to have to leave it here for now, but pick it up with Caitlin uh, after this commercial break. So stay with us, and we'll have more 2020 Insights. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. We'll look at this question of whether the Democratic frontrunner should be disqualified from the race. Some alleging that. We'll talk about some of the problems Joe Biden may face. So stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our 2020 political panel. And I want to start with you, Caitlin. You had uh, Bernie Sanders, the senator, on the show saying that a woman he knows, Lucy Flores, who's a Nevada politician uh, and has in the past endorsed, he has no reason not to believe her allegations of inappropriate touching that she says Mm -hmm. were made in 2014 by uh, the vice president, Joe Biden. Does this become disqualifying for him? He has not officially yet declared he's running. Right. Well, I think it shows the perils of waiting and lingering uh, about making a decision about whether to get into this race. The longer that he waits out there, the more scrutiny is applied to him and his record, especially as these voters are getting a look at all of the other options that they have available to them. It also shows this kind of contrast that Biden will be faced with within his own party, a party that has been dramatically changed in the era of Me Too. 
I will say that I've been reporting in New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina following all these candidates. And every time I ask a voter about what they think of Joe Biden, almost to a T, they say, I love him so much. I just don't want him to run. And part of that is that they feel kind of personally invested in his legacy and they know what a presidential race could do to him. And they want him to be a player, but not necessarily inside. Now, he does have high name recognition. He was the vice president to a very popular president for Democrats. So that's why you're seeing him lead the polls. And there certainly is time for him to uh, make a real campaign. But I think the response to this shows that he doesn't have a campaign operation ready to go and operating to respond to these kinds of attacks. So that's what leaves open those questions. Kellyanne Conway, counselor to president, called it the worst non-rollout of the 2020 campaign (laughs) uh, when she was on television today. I want to play one soundbite from the vice president as he tried to gesture towards uh, something in his legacy that may become a problem in 2020. A bunch of white guys hearing, hearing this testimony on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So when Anita Hill, when Anita Hill came to testify, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell it was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't come up with a way to get her the kind of hearing she deserved given the courage he showed by reaching out to us. Ed, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee that ran these hearings. Exactly. So he's now... He's describing himself as kind of powerless. Right, which, you know, has been relitigated ever since. And and there are a lot of people in the party, uh, certainly a lot of women who are involved in party politics these days who say it should have been handled differently. And there's a lot of people wondering, is he going to apologize away his entire Senate legacy over the course of this campaign? Because a lot of what he did and said back in the day doesn't sink with what the Democratic Party is. His behavior, his policies, his, his, you know, hours of Senate floor speeches, his votes on different bills. He's going to have to spend the entire campaign, particularly the entire primary at least, relitigating all that. And you wonder, really, does he really want to stomach that? But this, this situation with Flores, um, what's, what's telling, she was asked this morning elsewhere about this and whether politics were involved. She was a supporter of Bernie Sanders. She was at a Beto O'Rourke rally this weekend, and she said flat out, yes, it does, because we're in the midst of a reckoning in our party and trying to determine who our nominee should be. There have been examples of this his entire career, and it's never been seriously discussed, and he hasn't been held to account for it. We know all the instances of, you know, uh, women at a restaurant, the daughters, granddaughters, and wives of senators he was swearing in on swearing-in day at the Capitol, things he's done and said that we're sort of seen as, oh, that's... Uncle Mm -hmm. Joe being Uncle Joe. Well, up against the party that now exists and the activists who will fill those arenas uh, and those coffee shops and be the most active on the street in these early primary states, you wonder whether people are really going to want to have to justify and explain that to voters and how much of an issue it might become. Does experience become something that hurts him rather than helps him? I don't think experience per se, but I think Biden's particular position in the Democratic Party in the 70s and 80s and 90s hurts him. He was sort of a very centrist Democrat, and on crime and on drugs and on economic policy, he was with the center, even the conservative part of the Democratic Party, busing. And so in a, a present moment where... An otherwise liberal senator like Kamala Harris faces intense scrutiny about her criminal justice record, where the previous Democratic nominee for president, Hillary Clinton, basically had to apologize for the Democratic Party in the 1990s to make her way through the primary. Biden, I think more so than even Hillary Clinton, 
exemplifies the Democratic Party of the 90s in its bad and good. And that is going to be his burden Jamal, um, going forward. Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg had the most Google searches than anyone else in the field last week. So do we go from the well-established name to the unknown? I mean, is that where we have to kind of start from scratch? Well, listen, I think Mayor Pete Buttigieg is going to be the factor on the debate stage that we will all be talking about afterwards. I mean, he's somebody who is willing to say what he thinks. He's the youngest person running, but yet he seems to be among the most mature. Um, he's, he's coming at this with, with values. He's putting policy on the table. Um, he's a very strong uh, campaigner. I think for Vice President Biden, the danger I think a lot of people see in him is that he, this presidential experience may take away all the luster he built up over the time that he was vice president to Barack Obama, uh, which would then remove him from being kind of a, a statesman for the Democratic Party. He could run a campaign, he could win, it could all be fine, or it could be a big disaster. And I think when you look at the two, Biden and Buttigieg, this boomlet that he's having shows that there is no front runner in this Democratic field. It's pretty amazing that you have a former vice president, a popular former vice president, who hasn't cleared the field. And you're seeing other candidates, Bernie Sanders among them, Beto O'Rourke, raising a vast sums of money on a grassroots level. And it allows for some of these other candidates, lesser known, to try to make an impact that way because there is no clear front runner. And voters are trying to assess. We'll get a better idea of that with the fundraising numbers that are coming out, especially as the party is very much focused on these small dollar donations. Right. The, the fact that big dollar donations, corporate donations are becoming a political problem for Democrats, right. you, you can't take them, I think will be a big limiting factor on the field going forward because there's only so much grassroots support available total for everyone to take in. And, and we should, the reason that it's become an issue is because there's now an incentive to get as many donors as you can. There's right. literally a need mm -hmm. if you want to participate in the debates. You've got to hit 65,000 donors in 20 states or get 1% in at least three polls. A lot of candidates see the 65,000 in 20 states as an easier hurdle early on, and it incentivizes grassroots organizing right. and support and gives you credit with voters saying, look, I went out and found my tens of thousands of people. You have helped me get to this stage versus several candidates who've had to spend this past week, especially we, behind closed doors. And we may not have seen all the candidates, as we've said, Biden right. not yet declared. Right. Terry right. McAuliffe, still a name floating out there. Stacey Abrams this week, Jamal, was asked uh, about the idea of her being on the Biden ticket, and she said, you don't run for second place. It seemed to be kind of rebuffing this right. idea. But is she going to get in? Her, I mean, how big does this field get? I mean, it could get it could get very big. Um, it's still it's still very early in the process, and so there's probably space space for someone like Stacey Abrams, or probably space for other candidates. But I do think that as time goes on, as there are debates, as there's more fundraising, as all these as all the barriers and hurdles start coming up for progressing, I think this field will shrink considerably. Um, the the fact that uh, Beto, uh, that Senator Sanders. Um, that uh, Senator Harris are the three candidates who've been able to really take in large halls, to me at least suggests that those three at least have a very durable base within the party that can expand. Everyone else I'm not mm -hmm. entirely sure about. The president saw the Mueller report as a victory for him on the campaign trail. Are Democrats pretending it didn't happen? Well, Democrats have been saying since 2017 and lead up to the midterms that they wanted to focus on issues, mostly because 
the Mueller report, the conclusions at that time were unknown. And we saw health care as the top issue for Democrats in the 2018 election. It helped them to win back, you know, 40 seats and eventually win back the House. They saw the president's unlikely pivot to health care uh, as a welcome move from the president. And they believe that this is a winning issue for them. And it also removes some of the uh, pushback or criticism that they would have been getting from Republicans who were kind of really eager not to talk about their own health care plan, but to harp on the Democrats' plans. You talked to Bernie Sanders earlier uh, about Medicare for All, which has become kind of a baseline for mm-hmm. entry, some kind of acceptance of a national health care system, universal health care, as a baseline for entry for Democratic uh, contenders. Uh, Republicans wanted to point fingers at them, right. uh, not to uh, go back to their own policies, which they haven't been able to show the public that they can coalesce around a plan. We're going to have to leave it there. Caitlin, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Good to have all of you. Jamal? Don't leave. (laughs) Stick around. We'll be right back with more analysis of the week that was and the one that's about to begin. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. For some analysis on the rest of the week's news, Jamel Bowie is back with us. Kelsey Snell covers Capitol Hill for NPR. Jonah Goldberg is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the National Review. And Anna Palmer is a senior Washington correspondent for Politico. Um, Jonah, let me start with you. The president surprised his own party with this announcement that health care is going to be the new party identity. But then he went back to one of the, the sort of uh, most... I don't know, go-to line for him uh, Mm -hmm. on immigration, uh, bringing up again that he's going to potentially shut down the border this week. How do you do that without damaging the U.S. economy? What does that look like? Well, I mean, I know it's shocking that message discipline isn't the word of the day for for the Trump White House. I think that part of the problem, you can't shut down the border without hurting the economy, even though President Trump tweeted or said yesterday that uh, because of our trade deficit with Mexico, we would make money by shutting the border, which doesn't scan. Um, I think part of the problem is the White House has been trying, President Trump has been wanting to message the crisis as the border as basically a scene from a Chuck Norris movie where the people are coming in to, you know, rape and pillage the country. And uh, that's how he's wanted to describe the crisis. Democrats have not wanted to give him any credit for the fact that there actually is, a, and the media too, I have to say, 
credit for the fact that there actually is a crisis at the border, but it's not the crisis of the drugs and the guns and all of that. It's a humanitarian crisis. And so you have this sort of cross-messaging going on where the situation down there is very, very dire. Added to the problem is that while I'm sympathetic to the idea of more border security, a wall isn't what's going to solve the actual crisis that's going on down there. That requires a change in policy, a change in law. And so none of the messaging is lining up with the reality on either side. And Customs and Border Patrol, uh, Homeland Security said this week 100,000 migrants in this month alone, 60 percent of them children and, and their parents. How do you respond to this idea that credit's not being given to a, a real crisis at the border? I, I think the, the problem is that precisely because President Trump's framing is of this dire um, uh, sort of violent you know, crisis at the border, and he's not talking about the human, humanitarian aspect, there's sort of there's no there's no real space to give him credit. It also does not help the president that he wants to withdraw funding to the the relevant countries or or aid to the relevant countries, that he um, is not working as closely as he could with the Mexican government to help manage the flow of of migrants to the United States, that there are all these levers of policy that President Trump could take that he's either not doing or actively um, pushing against, which just exacerbate the problem. And uh, I, I think also the extent to which he hasn't – he's been saying I'm going to close the border for mm-hmm. so long, but hasn't taken any sort of step, which kind of encourages migrants, right, that I, there, there, it isn't as bad at the border as Trump says it is, so maybe I could take my chance. Well, the State Department is now telling Congress that they are stopping some of this aid, which was meant to stabilize the country, to stop migrants from fleeing. Uh, fleeing. Kelsey, can Congress stop the president? Bernie Sanders seemed to think they could. There are some Democrats in particular who think there are options in front of them, but I have not heard anybody articulate what exactly that is. I think that there, as I talk to Democrats and Republicans, they're also worried that this could exacerbate problems with the USMCA, the trade agreement that they're trying to finalize that's already in serious trouble in Congress right now. They are worried that they're not going to be able to get the kind of support they need if the president is starting another fight with Mexico. And, you know, there are plenty of people on both sides of the of the aisle who would really like to get some sort of trade stability happening with both Mexico and Canada. And it'll be interesting to see that doesn't even have a vote date yet. <laughs> they don't. So it's, it's been predicting April. It is very much up in the air and it is very, very difficult to see how that gets worked out. And uh, the Mueller report, we now have at least a four-page summary of what's in it. Um, this has become even a fundraising mechanism for the Trump campaign. They're raising money off of T-shirts with Adam Schiff, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, on them, sort of mocking him and saying all of this is uh, a conspiracy against the president. What, what does this all add up to? Does this continue as a storyline until we get the 400 pages in mid-April? I anticipate this is going to be a storyline for the next several months. There's going to be jockeying between uh, DOJ and Congress and Democrats want more information. They want the full report. Uh, They are not backing down from that. And I also think you see the president using this clearly as a political uh, ploy that he thinks works for him. He's been mentioning it on the campaign trail. I think that's going to continue. And this is a storyline that he's very comfortable with because he feels like he was vindicated. What do you make of the Democratic problems here within the party, the party within the, Dem- the problems within the Democratic Party? Woof. Um, had a hard time getting that one out <laughs> with AOC. She sent this tweet last night that 
some Republicans might welcome, but some Democrats felt a little bit of a discomfort with. She said the DCC's new rule to blacklist and boycott anyone who does business with primary challengers is extremely divisive and harmful to the party. You had some other progressives kind of joining her in this. What should people at home understand about what's happening within the party? This is basically the internal fight that the Democrats have been having in the last cycle about challengers in primary races. And you have members like AOC who want to take the party to the left and they want to have challengers that the party establishment are not okay with. And so this is actually a tool that uh, Mitch McConnell used on the Senate side and Republicans a couple of cycles ago to take back control. It's a way for the establishment to say, no, 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 if you're going to run for some of these more left-leaning candidates that are not in line with who we think can win these races ultimately, then you as a consultant aren't going to get the work of the party. Jonah, is all of this just a gift to Republicans, including the shift of the messaging back to health care? We had Senator Scott on the program, and he's kind of was throwing the ball back into the White House's court. Yeah, I think uh, I think the end of the Mueller probe, or at least this chapter of the Mueller probe, is actually a very is a benefit to a lot of Democrats because it takes the issue of impeachment, turns down the temperature on that. It lets them talk about things like health care, which are actually benefits or advantages for Democrats. And President Trump's decision to make health, to give Democrats the talking point that we're going to argue, debate about health care seemed to me like an incredible unforced error. Um, so it's, the Mueller report is good news so far for the president, but I think it's also good news for a lot of the Democratic candidates. And the decision to, to pivot to health care seems to me an unalloyed good for the Democrats right now. It's health care is an issue where President Trump, I think, gets especially vulnerable, not just because the administration doesn't have any particular plans. But you look at the 2016 coalition, there was more blue collar than any Republican coalition had been before. And it depends on maintaining certain margins with blue-collar whites mm-hmm. in certain states. And if there's an issue that's going to alienate those people from your party, it is saying, I'm going to take away your Medicaid. I'm going to take away um, whatever benefits you get from the Affordable Care Act. And it, it, it really is astounding, an astoundingly bad idea to make the centerpiece of your message, we're going to go with this again, when the last time you went at it, in August uh, 2017, President Trump's average approval rating dipped to about 36% the last time he went after mm-hmm. health care like this. And it it's, could be a good idea if there was any policy preparation. Right. But there's I no see. evidence no. that that's going right, on. Right, right, right. Right. Republicans do not want to be talking. That's right. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. why they keep kicking it back to the, we right. saw Mitch McConnell say, oh, good luck working with Nancy right. Pelosi. Right. <laughs> right. It's not something <laughs> Which is what Senator Scott was also saying, even though the president says he's... He and Senator Barrasso and others are going to have to come up with a solution. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us, and we'll be back with more. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. 
We're back now with our panel. Anna, can you pick us up here? I mean, we, we started off the program with Bernie Sanders, someone who embraces the term democratic socialist, who's embracing government-run and government-financed health care. The president is trying to use a lot of those principles as a kind of a rallying cry for his own supporters, saying, reject socialism. It's socialism or me. Um, does this actually resonate Clearly, the president thinks it does. He brought it up at a State of the Union, and it has been doing it several times at all the campaign rallies. I think Democrats are concerned about it, though. I think, you know, you don't see Nancy Pelosi and others wanting to carry the banner of socialism or democratic socialism at all. You know, and I think you have this, again, I kind of brought it up earlier, but this push-pull in the Democratic Party of where you have the Bernie Sanders, the AOCs of the world, and where the Democratic establishment is, and where they think they can win in a lot of these more moderate districts and in some of these states that are going to be up in 2020 that running the Bernie Sanders playbook mm-hmm. is not going to work. I, I, I think there's there's a flip side to that as well that could be dangerous for President Trump, which is that it's not as if Bernie Sanders is calling for, like, you know, Democratic control of the means of production, right? Like, he's not calling for, you know, nationalization and creation right. of state industries. He's calling for a very, very robust welfare state, for more Medicare, for free college, for these sorts of things. And if And things that are broadly popular with the public. And so if you're going to start defining Medicare for all or even just Medicare expansion, if you're going to start defining um, free college uh, or any of these programs as socialism, then the other thing that could happen is that voters say, hey, if this is socialism, like sign me up. Like if this is what it means to be socialist, then um, uh, I'll take that bet. If it's described as a Nordic country and not Venezuela. Right, 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 right. I mean, I was out in several of these majority maker districts, districts where the Democrats beat Republicans in 2018. And I talked to voters there who say when they hear the word Democrat, they hear socialist and they don't make those distinctions. They don't hear the policies. They hear the word. And I saw people showing up at town halls yelling in uh, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia out there at her town hall. You had people showing up and specifically wanting to ask her, are you a socialist? You're a Democrat. Does that mean you're a socialist? And that's not something that, you know, moderates like her want to talk about. Yeah, there's also just a label problem. You know, uh, I think it was Quinnipiac had a poll recently that showed that support among Democrats for single-payer health care is going down, but support for Medicare for all is going up. (laughs) They think that Medicare for all is, like, not socialism. You know, it sounds like a more moderate, you know, kind of approach. And if you look at the Gallup polling on socialism over the last 10 years, you find that basically the support for socialism is basically a referendum on the state of capitalism, right? right? It's, it's just whatever, ca- if capitalism is in bad odor at any given moment, like they're in a financial crisis especially, then people say socialism because it's basically, they think it's a binary thing. And the reality is I don't think there are a lot of voters out there that actually want real socialism, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily love capitalism right now either. But they want things like guaranteed pre-existing conditions and right. maternity care and right. things like that. So I think guaranteed. Where, the, where the danger comes in is if, if President Trump is citing, is citing himself with sort of un, unrestrained capitalism. That is actually unpopular as well, right? Right, right. And so if, if, if what you're doing is, is saying, I'm for unrestrained capitalism and the people who want a generous welfare state are for socialism, then you might end up losing that branding game um, if, if you insist that it's the, the generous, recognizable policies that are the bad thing. Yeah, I mean, the fight will be over who gets to define the terms. Right. And if Trump wins 51% of that argument about defining the terms, it's very good for him. If he loses it, it's very bad for him. Kelsey, what happens when the attorney general goes to Capitol Hill and actually gives testimony at the beginning of May, answering questions about the Mueller report? 
Well, I think that is going to be equal parts um, political kind of circus and a lot of information getting out there to the public that people want to understand. And I think it'll be up to Democrats to find a way to walk the line between wanting to push the political side of things and get political wins on the board on a, you know, on a hearing that will be widely watched and televised and needing to establish that their investigations going forward are not some sort of the partisan witch hunt that the president talks about. It's going to be a delicate balance and it should be very, very interesting to watch. All right, we will be watching it, and we'll have plenty of analysis then. Thanks to all of you for joining us. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Florida Senator Rick Scott. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow... If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.